Second Timothy chapter four. One through eight, though um, my intention today is to unpack verses three through eight. We looked a little bit at verse one and two last week, and I might bring in a little. You'll bring in a little bit verses one and two. I particular purpose in mind for today's <clears throat> sermon passage, but Second Timothy four, God's holy word. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and they will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you are a holy God, a good God, a loving God, a kind God, a patient God. We come to you, Father, in the name of Christ, and pray, Father and Son, that you would fill me and fill all of us with the Holy Spirit, me to the end of preaching the word rightly, us to the end of receiving the word rightly, conform us into the image of Christ increasingly, help us mortify the flesh, put to death the deeds of the flesh and sin in our life. And may we grow in righteousness and Christ-likeness and holiness and love. We pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. <clears throat> so I've entitled the sermon, what have I entitled the sermon? Consider Time. And really, I, I probably should have perfected the title, Consider Time and Work. We're going to look at the business of activity, and obviously activity has to take place in time. So it's those two kind of themes, time and um, work. And when I say work, I don't mean expressly uh, punch a time clock work. I mean any kind of activity that we put our hands to. So time and activity, time and work. And one of the difficulties, just by way of introduction to the whole business of time, when we're talking about time, it's almost like water for a fish. Does a fish know that they're wet? I don't think they do know if they're wet. It's, they just swim in they swim in it. So time for us is like water for a fish. It's just, it just is. We just swim in it. It's the air we breathe, the water we swim in. But time really isn't just, it just isn't is. Um, it's something that's created. And before Genesis 1-1, many years ago, a fellow approached me at a funeral and said, what was God doing before Genesis 1-1? <laughs> he hasn't told me. But before Genesis 1-1, God is. There is an eternal, timeless, uncreated, independent God. 
And so when we think of time, it's something that this eternal, uncreated, independent God has created. But he himself is not bound to it. He is above time. He's beyond time. It's beyond our limited capacities. The Bible says in the book of um, Isaiah, chapter 55, I think, God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So when we come to the business of time and then timelessness, eternity, in referencing to God, it's almost a concept that we can't even grasp because we are creatures of time and space. We are bound according to time. It's impossible. We can say the word eternity or eternality or something like that, but we really can't do it justice. But the Bible tells us in the book of Genesis, which is the the book of beginning of all things, chapter 1 and chapter 2, that this uncreated eternal God has created time, and in time he created everything, both visible and invisible. And we know that in keeping with the providence or the government of God, that he governs everything that he has made, both visible things and invisible things, all their creatures, all his creatures and all their actions. And that extends to time. There is a purpose for time. I promise I'm not going to quote uh, um, Ecclesiastes 3, um, 1 through 10. My wife and I did this for worship the other day. I think the birds, was it the birds? I know I'm dating myself. They took Ecclesiastes. There's a time and a season for everything and turn, turn, turn. Um, I won't quote that. But God uses time ultimately to bring in Christ the first time and then ultimately, ultimately to bring Christ in the second time for the purpose of bringing his elect people to Christ. But as we look at the business of time, clearly in the text, a number of places, God says time. He uses the word time. And he'll talk about work time. He'll talk about dying time. He'll talk about glory time. Time. And God wants us as his creatures, one creature, and then two as his redeemed children, that we should be aware of time. We should think of time. And we should use time the way that we are required to use everything, which is to say for his glory. And another, another thing that when we're looking at this business, particularly as Paul says he's getting ready for his own dying time, and as our brother Tony mentioned, which that statement, that, that phrase that he has said, life is short, uh, death is sure. He's t- said that statement to me a number of times. I think perhaps the Baptist churches might be keen to use that. That's a perfect statement. And when we think about the business of time, we should think, looking at this text, and even in a big macro view, that we don't have an unlimited pool of time. Um, we, we do not. Our life is like, the, like a, an hourglass. I, do, I don't even know if people know what hourglasses are anymore, but it's like an hourglass. And you flip it over, and not only do we have a limited quantity of time, but every day that we live, we are diminishing in that particular quantity of time. And someday, the totality of that time will be gone f- for us individually. And I would argue, even though the day shouldn't catch us by surprise, I think sometimes it does catch us by surprise, even as a believer. Time is up. (laughs) Time is up. So we see all of those things here in our passage. Um, Time and and the use of time, uh, working well. Uh, The outline, as I mentioned, verses 1 and 2, and maybe I would would put verse 8 in there. The first kind of time that you see, maybe I'll do it the way that I've got it in my sermon. the Apostle Paul talks about to Timothy, he says, essentially, preach the word. And then he says in verse 3, a time is coming when people aren't going to want the preached word. I'm calling this work time. So the first aspect of time that I want us to be aware of is work time. 
And the work time that Paul is describing here is, I would argue, this is the contemporary scene in which all Christians live and work. And I would argue that particular time in reference to work has to do certainly with in the world and then in the church. And I would argue something that you probably already know. I would argue that much of the world has gotten into the church, that we have had less an effect on, of the world and they have been more successful in their evangelizing us than we have of them. And I would argue that the church has not heeded the call of the Lord Jesus Christ to be a separate people, a holy people, in our affections, in our speech and actions. And rather, I would argue that the church has tried to become friends with the world. And they have misused their time in the work that God has given us to do in this time. And the ministry of the word will reflect that we have misunderstood work time. The next time that the Apostle Paul talks about is kind of the culmination of the work time, and that picks up around, I don't know, verse 6 or 7, where he says, my, the time of my departure is about, is about here. He's talking about dying time. So we go from work time, how we think of time, work time, then we come to the conclusion of our work time, which Paul refers to as his um, dying time. I'm reading a series of sermons, just because I'm a strange Christian and a stranger minister, by a fellow by the name of Samuel Ward. And he's a completely obscure Puritan. And the reason I'm reading him is because one of my favorite post-Puritans, J.C. Rowell, said he's fabulous. So anybody that J.C. Rowell likes, I necessarily think I'll like. So Samuel Ward says this about our life and the way that we should think of time and use time. He says, we should think of our life and use our life as a living death and as a dying life. In other words, he's arguing to do what the Apostle Paul does, that he thinks regularly of his dying time, his exodus time, his race finish time, and it helps him to use his work time more to the glory of God. We're going to argue that. And then the last bit of time, which I probably won't have time to talk about, is um, what I will reference is glory time. This is verses 1 and 2 coupled with verse 8. Paul says, I'm going to finish the race, and then I'm going to get the crown of righteousness. He's talking about judgment day. So work time, dying time, glory time. Thinking of time, but thinking of, of the activity that God has placed into our hands to use during that time. Now, the general purpose, it, it will be evident, but I want to say it. <clears throat> Paul is writing to Timothy for a purpose, and he writes two epistles. And the purpose is very, very evident. It's to, to, to motivate him on to use his time properly that he would work more faithfully. He's a preacher. He essentially says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of uh, sonship, daughterhood, a spirit of sound mind, power, dunamis. And essentially he says, fight the good fight, run the good race. Think of your time proper, work time properly. Think of the time that your work time is coming to an end, dying time. Think of that. And then think of standing before Judge Christ, hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. This is all meant to motivate Timothy. Paul loves Timothy. He, and even when he talks about Timothy's failures or he's stumbling or he's, he's too tremulous, he's not meaning to depress Timothy. He wants to motivate him or excite him on to greater measures of fidelity and loyalty to Christ. That's the purpose. That's the end game. To live a more Christ-like life and to serve Christ more diligently. That's the purpose. Our brother prayed it in his prayer. 
What's the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Well, Paul is putting practical legs and hands to that. How do we do that? How do we live for... How do we live more Christ-like lives, overcoming, serving Jesus? How do we use the gospel talent that God put in our hand more diligently? How do we not get sidetracked with the world, the flesh, and the devil? Think about our work time. Think about our dying time. And think about the time when we will stand before Judge Christ. My mom, who is not alive any longer, but when she was living... I don't know whether it's an Irish statement because we were a particularly melancholy people. And she would say this statement, in a hundred years, what will it matter? In a hundred years, what will it matter? And then you think, well, well, that's your Irish mother who's melancholy. Perhaps that's true. But in a hundred years, what is it going to matter? A lot of the stuff that gets us in tumult. And if I could take that in a hundred years, what will it matter, that secular proverb, let's apply it to standing before Jesus on Judgment Day. When we stand before Christ on Judgment Day, what will a lot of the way that we've used our time and our talents, what will, it, will it really amount to anything? Will we, have, will we have served Christ well? Or will we be so sidetracked with other stuff? And so that, that's meant to all of these three times has meant to spur us on to a more excellent use of time so that we would be more faithful in the activity that God has placed in our hands. I want to talk about, so there's the time aspect, but it's the work aspect in the time that's going on. I want to just mention generally about the concept, concept of work. God, who is the only, the God of the Bible is the only God that there is, and he reveals himself both in scripture and in nature. And when we look outside at a beautiful blue sky and, and the sun and all of these things, we can see clearly, when we look in, look in the Bible, we see the work of creation out there. We see the work of redemption here. And we know something about God and work. God works. Our God is an active God. Our God is a thinking God. Our God is a God that completes all his plans. That's what the providence of God is for, to bring in all of the elect and then to bring Christ and then the eternal estate. So our God is an active God. And the Bible tells us as human beings, even after the fall, I would argue we have lost the narrow image of God and man, true holiness, true righteousness, but we've retained the larger or more general uh, image of God and man, uh, and that we're religious or moral or, or, or spiritual responsible creatures. We are created in God's likeness and image. Have you ever wondered why human beings can put a man on the moon. We can send things to Mars. You go into a hospital and they can do all sorts of wonderful things. How is it that men can do these things? Because we are created in the image of our our God. That he's given us to be rational, thinking, and active. God works and he has created man to work, to be active. And so when we see Paul tell Timothy, be faithful in your work, we're created to work. Now, we're going to go from the general idea of working to the particular work that God has put into Timothy's hands and the particular work that he's put into your hands. But the basic point is Paul, God through, the, God through Paul, is motivating Timothy to use his time better or well in that he would be more diligent with his work. And if you think generally what God kind of work God called Adam and Eve to, just think back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Before the creation of Eve, God told Adam, well, go name all the creatures. 
and then after the creation of, of Eve, you see that both Adam and Eve are to take dominion, they're to be fruitful, they're to multiply, and they're to be God's stewards and rule everything to the glory of God. Adam and Eve, male and female. So human beings are designed by God to be active unto the Lord. Everything he puts in our hands. And I want to just say this. <clears throat> what was the first vocational job that man had? Was it a white-collar job, as it were? No, it wasn't a white-collar job. What was he? He was a farmer. He was a farmer. And I just commit this to your reading. John Murray has a wonderful little treatise on the business of man working with his hands. And females working. I'm just, when I say man, I mean male and females. Um, ba- based on... Um, based on creation. It's in a, a, John Murray has a book on the law. And that we were created to, 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 for intellectual work and then, and then we were created for physical work. And I would argue farming is both. Um, when, if you say, well, farming is not intellectual, I, I don't think you're thinking rightly. I can just say I watched sheep farmers in, in the Ring of Kerry tour and they took a dog and they whistled at these dogs and those dogs could cut those sheep all over that hillside. That's intellectual work and physical work. And God has called us to do both. And, and then the, the business of being fruitful and multiply, God has called men and women to have families. And that's part of the work. So when we're talking how to use our time wisely and, and to, to be faithful with our work, it's not just being a fireman or a cop or a minister, raising kiddos, having kiddos. It's everything, all of the activity. So think of the activities that God has placed into your hands. And now not only has God created us to use the time that he's given us to to carry out the work that he's given us, he's given us particular work. And I mentioned whether it's having kids or raising kids or being a fireman, God is the one that gives particular talents. Read Genesis chapter 4, which is a two-ball cane and those other people, they could play instruments. I tried to learn how to play the saxophone in college. And even the guy teaching me to learn how to play the saxophone basically said, this is a waste. (laughs) Save your money. You have zero musical talent. Go home and do something else. I have none. So I sold my saxophone because I had no musical talent. But God is the one who says, you have musical talent. You have farming talents. You have talents to raise a baby. You have these talents. And that's your particular work. And so then God is giving us time to do that particular work to his glory. Now we come to Timothy. Timothy has a particular job given to him by God in Christ. And the Bible tells us what it is. He's an evangelist. The evangelist is he's a gospeler. He's a good news person. He runs around and tells people about Jesus. That's his job. He was a traveling evangelist. He was a traveling missionary. And then he became, I think, a minister uh, at um, a pastor at Ephesus. So God the Holy Spirit is telling us all, individually and corporately, as creatures, and then as redeemed creatures, Christians, that inactivity, sloth, is a sin, and activity is a commandment. We are all required to work. Whatever it is God has called us to do, and he has called us to be diligent in it. And now here, to Timothy. That's the context. In verses 1 and 2, God the Holy Spirit, through Paul, tells Timothy to preach the word. So he's called him to be a preacher, and now he says, preach the word. I know this is going to seem kind of stunning or or simple. God is calling him to use his time to do 
the actual work that God has called him to do. Ministers are supposed to minister the word. And he says, minister the word. I know you think, well, yeah, okay, did we send you to seminary for that? It's not just any old activity. God is not saying, well, fill up your time, preacher, with any old, be a farmer. Instead of preaching the word, kind of preach the word part-time, but be a farmer or go surfing. God is not saying to this person, well, you're created to be active, therefore just be active in any old thing. Oh, no. If he's called this man to this particular calling, particular work, he wants him to use his time for that particular thing. I'm not saying you can't go for a walk with your wife and kids, but the primary use of time for this man is not part-time farmer, not time politician, not part-time surfer, any of those things. He is to be a full-time what? Word, 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 word. So he tells him, use your time for the ministry of the word. Read First Timothy chapter uh, 6. So I would argue this, and this is keeping with some things I've read from R.C. Sproul. I would, I would argue most ministers that come into the ministry, if they think, that if they're believers in Christ and they feel called by God in Christ to minister the word, and I know it's easy to pick on ministers, and I know I'm a minister, so I don't want it to like, well, of course you're sticking up for your, your brothers. It's easy to pick on preachers. You're in it just for the, you work one day a week and eat fried chicken and, and you play golf. It's so easy squeezy. I, I understand there could be lousy preachers. I, I get it. Lazy preachers. I understand that. But I would argue most ministers, real Christians, don't start off their ministry going, you know what, I just want to be the biggest, laziest slug I can find and I just want to just fleece the flock for the money. I, I, that's not how they start off. How do they start off as regards to this preach the word business? I would argue they're probably starting off more faithful to the Bible, studying the Bible, obeying the Bible, and they're not squandering their time on other things. And then what happens after a while? They start to get taken off of the word of God and they get busy in other things. And you think, oh, those poor ministers. Well, apply it to a marriage. People start off in marriage, and what do they think? Boy, howdy, I cannot even, I can't be away from this, this female for five seconds. I just need to study her 24 hours a day. And then what happens? For the gal and for the guy. I got other stuff to do. It just creeps in. And what creeps in? The world, the flesh, and the devil creep in. In the ministry, in marriage, in parenting, in working, everything. How many people have prayed, oh, God, give me this job. Oh, God, give me this job. And you're at the job for five minutes and you think, I don't even want to be here anymore. What happens? The world, the flesh, and the devil take the zeal off, in this man's case, potentially take the man's zeal off of the word and onto other things. And I would argue the deceitfulness of, of riches, uh, the cares of the world, and certainly the world, the flesh, and the devil get too, too much for the man. And so... God, the Holy Spirit, is telling the man to reorient him, himself, his time and his use of time back. Preach the word, preach the word, preach the word is what he says. Now, that's the call. And look in verse 3. He says, a time is coming, preacher, who have been called by God to preach the word, which is the Bible. What does it say? I, I promise. And you think, well, pastor, you're so negative. And 
we know that you're Irish and you're a negative Nelly. I, I promise this is not me being a negative Nelly. I did not write the Bible. Stunning. A time will come when what? <laughs> when they will not endure sound doctrine. A time is going to come, Timothy, after God just told you, preach the word. Preach the Bible. Sound doctrine, I know people think doctrine is a bad word. It just means teaching. It's either teaching according to the Bible, bad doctrine, a uh, good doctrine, or teaching not according to the Bible, bad doctrine. So when you hear doctrine, don't immediately think, and I know this happens, I want to be a practical Christian, not a doctrinal Christian. It's so silly. It's unthinking. In, in, we do what we believe. And so is your belief biblical or not biblical? And we live accordingly. And so he says, now I want you to preach sound doctrine. <laughs> and then right away he says, in the use of time in work, a time is coming when they're not going to put up with it. They're not going to put up with Bible doctrine or Bible teaching, true doctrine or teaching. Now, I'm just going to put this as a plug. Preach sound doctrine. They don't want to hear sound doctrine. This is one of the reasons why I personally like confessional church churches. I didn't always used to like confessional churches, but I do like confessional churches now. Because then you know what kind of cookie is in the cookie jar. And if they have a good uh, uh, underlying secondary standard or confession, and when I mean by good, I mean biblical, and they hold their men, their ministers to it, and that's important. Everybody and their brother can say, oh, yes, yes, we believe in the Bible. Yes, yes, we have the confession of faith, uh, Westminster, let's say. In the, larger, in the larger Presbyterian denominations, they keep their Westminster Confession of Faith under a glass jar. Oh, we believe it. Yeah, yeah, we totally believe it. And Sister Sally, who's preaching next week, she totally believes that. No, she doesn't believe it because she wouldn't be there. <laughs> you see what I mean? So it's useful that we could have this system of sound words. Now, I'm going to put that off as an aside. Now, who are the they that the Holy Spirit talks about? A time is coming when they will not put up with sound doctrine. Who, who are the they? You would say they're unbelievers. And you're right. <laughs> are these unbelieving folk outside of the church? Sometimes I use the term worldling. I'm not using it as a pejorative. I'm using it just as a descriptive word, what it is. is does, does Paul say to Timothy, Timothy, you preaching out of the Ephesian church, a time is going to come when the people that don't even come to church won't put up with Bible preaching. Is that what he's saying? No, that's a given. Do Hindus want to hear the Bible preached faithfully? No. What about Muslims? What about Buddhists? Does a professed unbeliever, how about an atheist? Are they really chomping at the bit to hear the word of God expounded faithfully? No, they're not. Because they're open antagonists against the God of the Bible, the Christ of the Bible, the Bible itself. They're open. They say, of course, we, we don't want to hear this thing because we're dead in our sins and trespasses and we think it's nonsense. And if you read Romans chapter 8, verse 7, the Bible tells us why they don't want to hear the word of God. In Romans chapter 3 as well. They're at enmity with God. This is like asking your most flaming Democrat friend to tell you what did they think about the Republicans. They're not going to give you a fair answer or vice versa because they have a built-in prejudice. So the unbeliever, when you say, do you want to hear the word of God? No, I don't want to hear the word of God because I hate God. I hate the author of the word and I hate the people that preach. the. Now, they're not going to say it like that. What do they have to say? 
I am good and they are bad and I don't want to hear bad people. So they don't, this, so he's, yes, I admit, people outside of the church don't want to hear the word faithfully preached. But do they need to hear the word faithfully preached? Do they need it? Do people that do not want the word of God, do they need the word of God? Do people that, that are haters of Christ, do they need the gospel? They need it. They need it. That's why we have missionaries. That's why we have evangelism. That's why when we talk to our family that doesn't love Christ, and they say, hey, what do you want to talk about? Let's talk about Jesus. (laughs) I don't want to talk about Jesus. Okay, Jesus. They need it. The law of God convicts them of their sin, and the gospel of God frees them from their sin. And God is so loving that he sends the word of God to people that don't want the word of God. And then what, what does he do? He breaks their heart. He takes out their stony heart. He gives them a heart of flesh. He makes them lovers of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when he says a time is going to come where they're not going to put up, if people say to you, well, can you only tell the Bible to people that want the Bible? No, I can't. Why? Because God has told me to do something completely contrary. To give the Bible to everybody. What happens if they don't want it? Most of the people are not going to want it. But they need it. And who wants them to have it? God wants them to have it. And if they don't have it, where will they go? They'll go to hell in their sins. We have the words of eternal life. But this text of a time is coming when they will not put up... Now this is thinking about our work time properly is not folks outside in the world. It's folks where? In the church. I I want you to think of that. A time is coming, pastor, preacher to professing Christians, when professing Christians will not put up with Bible preaching. They won't put up with true, faithful scripture, preaching and teaching in the church. So this isn't like a, look at those crazy XYZ folks out there. This is God the Holy Spirit telling the minister of the church, there are going to be plenty of folks that say we are Christians of whatever stripe. We're not putting up with you. If you tell, this, tell me what this book says, we're not putting up with it. And he tells them that. He tells the minister in advance. I, I, I want to read something that Paul has already said. Again, to prepare, to, to prepare us. Realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be, and this, these folks are in the church. This isn't the worldling. This is the churchling. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, brutal haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they have denied its power. This is stunning. Paul tells Pastor Timothy, Pastor Timothy, a time is coming, and now is, when there will be tons of professing Christian folk that will not put up with faithful preaching and teaching of the Bible. They will not put up with it. Why does he tell him this? Why does he tell him this? It's true. Because it's true. And remember his calling. If you're a farmer, and I sometimes watch this 
there will be a guy who's never farmed anything. I've never farmed anything in my life. But he's thinking, what a sweet gig. I'll just wake up and have coffee and hang out with a rooster all day long. It will be great. And he's never done anything like that. And he gets into the business of farming. And what happens five minutes into farming? Ooh, this is like work. This is real work. And this isn't easy squeezy. It doesn't, just doesn't happen overnight. And, the, and what happens to his gentleman farm? He quits it in five seconds because he gets in not knowing what he's getting into. And so the same with the word. Well, I can move my lips. I love Jesus. I can do this. If you don't think rightly what you're getting into, you're going to be gone. So we tell the man, buy your gentleman farm, but it's like work. And when you get into the ministry, there are going to be tons of folks that say, yes, I'm a Christian. Oh, I love the Bible. I just don't like you teaching it. I just don't like you when you tell me the truth. He tells him in advance because it's true. And he's telling the preacher, keep preaching the word of truth even when you incur the disapproval of Bible-rejecting, supposed Bible-professing people. That's what he says. So these are Bible-professing people who reject the Bible. And he says to him, a time is coming when they won't endure it. That's part of the spiritual battle. And we know the same, and we do it from preacher to congregant, congregant to preacher. And for us as believers, we all have folks that we love that I'm a believer. Everybody's a believer. 74% of Americans are believers. Probably 100% of all of our family are professing Christians. And we will look around and think, well, Buttercup, how come you hate it when I just mention Jesus or the Bible? This? This? A time, he says a time is coming. He says might. It's coming. It's here. And they're not, they're not going to put up with it. But you believe in the Bible. Oh, yeah, I totally believe in the Bible. Do you want, will you listen to the Bible? No, I'm not going to listen to the Bible. But I love the Bible. That's the scene in which we do our work. Um, now, when we look at Paul telling Timothy, think of your time, use your work, and work in the face of, uh, what would I say, opposition. Folks that are professing Christians that reject the Bible, really, don't do it openly or honestly. I'm, it, the way that we do it, and we all do this, we have to vindicate ourselves somehow. And we have to indict someone else somehow. So it works like this. So the person that says, I don't want real Bible preaching, true Bible preaching, this is the way that they do it. They'll never say, the minister is right to be faithful, I'm faithless, I should repent. Most often that doesn't happen this way. But most often it happens like this. Well, the minister is unchristlike. He's so judgmental. He's so unloving. And you know what? He really abuses the word of God. And because I'm such a lover of Jesus, and I love the Bible so much, I have to quit and go find a really faithful minister. That's how it works. And I'm going to tell you something. Folks that can't indict themselves, that's why I read Psalm, what was it, 32. Folks that cannot own their own sin, that's a mark of a Pharisee. That's a mark of a Pharisee. The person that just can't call a spade a spade. I hate the Bible and I don't want to hear it. I'm a, I'm a Hindu. Then you're more, you're more honest than the Christian says, oh, I'm a Christian, don't get me wrong. Oh, I love the Bible, don't get me wrong. I just have no intention of obeying the Bible. And I hate it when that guy tells me the Bible. You are less honest than a Hindu. At least the Hindu says he doesn't believe or she doesn't believe. And so, but the way that we have to do it in order to still call ourselves Christians 
is that the other guy is the, is the reason. He's the fault. And of course, I'm so good and holy, I have to go. And he says, they're not going to endure it. And it means not put up. They're not going to put up with it. And so the first way they don't put up with it is they're gone. And the second way that folks don't put up with a sound preacher is what, what's the second way? If the first way is they get gone, what's the second way? They don't put up with it. They make the minister get gone. If you've ever read Jonathan Edwards from the land of my birth, where was it? Was it in Stockbridge? They sent him off to Stockbridge, but he was in Northampton with this church. Jonathan Edwards, genius of genius. And there were some kids that were sinning. Not kids, but teenagers sinning. And so he rebuked them, according to what the Bible says. He rebuked them. And what did their folks do, who happened to be wealthy folks in the town? Jonathan, remember how you and your wife used to live on that farm that we let you live on? You're gone. So folks that won't endure with sound preaching, they either leave or they get the minister gone. And Paul is telling Timothy, but not you. But not you. Don't, and here, here's the underlying, I guess we're doing one, one point sermon. He is telling Timothy, the faithful teacher, preacher of the Bible, don't let Bible-rejecting Christians dictate to you what your ministry should be. Does that make sense? So when we're asking, let, let's just take it from the minister away and just for us every day to Christian to Christian. We don't want to ask a Bible-less Christian or a Bible-rejecting Christian, what do you all think about this? What do you all think about that? What about this? What about that? And I, I don't mean this in a mean way, but if they're rejecting the Bible, why are we going to go to them to counsel us in Scripture? Why are we going to let them tell us when the Christian life is like or about when they themselves have turned their back on the rule for the Christian life? And so he tells the minister, stay the course. My dad used to be a devotee of this guy, Zig Ziglar. And Zig Ziglar had this statement, a big shot is just a little shot that kept shooting. And that's what he tells Timothy. Before I got into the minister, there was a Pentecostal preacher I used to listen to on the radio. And the old Pentecostal preacher said, and he was a country boy, and he said, all I am is a plotter. I'm a plotter. I plot. I plot along. I preach from Lord's Day to Lord's Day, from Lord's Day to Lord's Day. I'm a plotter. And that's what God the Holy Spirit tells Timothy. Be sober. Don't get caught up in this stuff. Be steady, Freddy. Preach the word. But there are going to be folks that don't like it. Yeah, they killed Jesus. Pre- preach the word. Jesus has already said, preach the word. But they don't want it. But they need it. In the church, out of the church. Be faithful to the word. Be faithful to the word. And God will draw his elect ones to himself. And God will build his elect ones up in Jesus Christ. Will he not? If there were a ministry that was decidedly not true according to the word, but it was pleasing to the flesh, let's say, would it do us any real spiritual good? Let's say you came here and I told you, you know what? Here's what God says to you. You're going to be super healthy, super wealthy. Your marriage is going to be awesome. Your kids are going to all be handsome and awesome. Everything's going to be perfect. And this is your best perfect life. 
Would you feel happy? Yeah, this is awesome. And what have I done for you? Not a thing. Not one thing. If you want a pep talk, go to a pep talk guy. Paul says to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist, a gospeler. Talk about Jesus. You see, he says a time's going to come. They're not going to put up with sound doctrine. They're going to want other stuff, interesting stuff, myth. I, I, I'm going to get off that. But here's what those things, the other stuff that's super interesting. You know what it won't do? All that other stuff that the people want? It will never convict us of our sin. Never. Why? Because you're not talking about sin. It will never bring us to Christ as our sin bearer. Why? Because you're not talking about Christ as sin bearer. What are you talking about? Yeah, look at this really cool, insightful thing that I found. The secret myth. And if you add six and divide by four, look at all this wonderful insight. And what do people think? Wow, that's really is, hmm, is it going to be the mark of the beast? What's that going to be all about? And we, we hear nothing of our sin, nothing of Christ our Savior, nothing of holiness, nothing of heaven. And Paul tells Timothy to do what? Preach Christ. And I'm gonna, here's going to be this, my last point. I've gone too long. Paul says, the time of my exodus has come. That's what he, he uses, the, this term, my departure. Jesus refers to his death as a departure, exodus. The apostle Peter refers to his death as an exodus. And the apostle Paul refers to his, his life as, a, as an exodus. I'm going to be freed from slavery, and I'm going to be freed unto ultimate freedom. It's the end of our work time. God has put in my hands the word for work time. And for, for you, God has put some work into your hands to do all the days of your life. And you are to do it to the glory of God. And there is a day coming when work time will be over. And when will that work time be over? On the day of your death. On the day of your departure. And and Paul uses thinking of his own death to make him a better Christian. To make him more faithful. This isn't depressing. This motivates him. It excites him. You can see the excitement in the Apostle Paul's pen when he says... I'm almost to the end of my race. I can see the finish line. Oh, beloved, we live in a hard work time. We live in a time when we're fighting the world, the flesh, and the devil. But the end of our work, the end of our hard times is what? Jesus Christ says this. Behold, I come quickly and my reward is with me. What's the reward? What is the reward that you want as a Christian? When we cross the finish line, What are we going to get? Well done. That crown of righteousness. I think it's everlasting felicity, joy, love, happiness, glory. We get the immediate presence of Christ. Paul says, work on, and and I'm getting ready to die. I'm getting ready to finish my work, and I'm going home. Beloved, we're we're all running a race. Most folks, when they come to die in time, it catches them. It catches them like they've never seen a person die. Like they've never been told by God they're going to die. Our work time is coming to an end. Our death time is coming. And God wants us to think about it. And look at the language he uses. It's not morose at all. He, he says the first thing is, my life is a, is a religious sacrifice. Think of your life, your death, as something religious. You're, to live is a sacrifice to Jesus. To die is a sacrifice to Jesus. And then he talks about it as that exodus, a freedom unto freedom. 
this old stuff. I prayed it, I prayed it here. This whole week, I've just been a, a Romans chapter 7. Why in the world can I not stop sinning? It's been a Romans chapter 7. Oh, beloved, what is our worship of God going to be like when we leave here without this? I can't even imagine how good it will be. And we're to think about our time and the conclusion of our time here. We are going to stand before Jesus Christ. And he is, you know how people make fun of like everybody gets a finisher's medal. Everybody, they all make fun of that. Like you're going to be number one. I was never number one in my life. I'm going to tell you something. Everybody gets a finisher's medal. If you are a Christian and you die, <laughs> when you die, you are getting, you're getting the finisher's medal. You're hearing, well done, my good and faithful servant. And beloved, thinking about that, there's an end to the hard times. There's an end to the struggle. And when that work time comes and we're in the immediate presence of God, would we not live? Remember I said this is to make us live more Christ-like lives? Would we not live more Christ-like lives thinking about on a regular basis, someday I'm going to be in the immediate presence of Jesus Christ. Beloved, God has given you a certain amount of time. I don't know what it is. I don't know what my time is. God has put work in your hands to do to bring glory to God. Everything in your life is to be a love gift to the Lord. And God has appointed a day and a way for every one of us to leave this place and go home with him. To everyone that has loved his appearing, you will hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.